Our scripture focus is found in 1 Samuel chapter 27, verses 1 through 12. David said to himself, One of these days I'll be swept away by Saul. There is nothing better for me than to escape immediately to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will give up searching for me everywhere in Israel, and I'll escape from him. So David set out with his 600 men and went over to Achish, son of Maok, the king of Gath. David and his men stayed with Achish in Gath. Each man had his family with him, and David had his two wives, Ahimelam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's widow. When it was reported to Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer searched for him. Now David said to Achish, If I have found favor with you, let me be given a place in one of the outlying towns so I can live there. Why should your servant live in the royal city with you? That day Achish gave Ziklag to him, and it still belongs to the kings of Judah today. The length of time that David stayed in Philistine territory amounted to a year and four months. David and his men went up and raided the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amimelikes. From ancient times, they had been the inhabitants of the region through Shur as far as the land of Egypt. Whenever David attacked the land, he did not leave a single person alive, either man or woman, but he took flocks, herds, donkeys, camels, and clothing. Then he came back to Achish, who inquired, Where did you raid today? David replied, the south country of Judah, the south country of the Jeramalites, or the south country of the Kenites. David did not let a man or woman live to be brought to Gath, for he said, or they will inform on us and say, this is what David did. This was David's custom through the whole time he stayed in the Philistine territory. So Achish trusted David, thinking, since he has made himself repulsive to his people Israel, he will be my servant forever. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Uh, my name is Andrew, and I serve as one of the pastors here and have the privilege of leading us through our study of the scriptures. So if you have your Bibles, I'm going to encourage you to grab those, turn them open to 1 Samuel chapter 27. If you do not have a Bible, know that we've provided some on the table in the back. Feel free to grab one of those if you don't have one. If you don't own one, take one with you. Let it be our gift to you on this day. You know, Zack Snyder is a movie director responsible for some of the most visually stunning films of the 21st century. He was uh, behind the camera for 300, that Spartan epic that made a lot of ripples and had a big influence on how movies were made. But he was also at the helm when he tried to rejuvenate and kind of recast and revision some of the DC comic book superhero movies that were coming out. And in 2013, he directed Man of Still. And as he did so, he sparked some controversy because he made a decision on how to present Superman that had never been done before. He put our hero or the hero of that film in a situation where it seemed as though he had no choice but to take a life. And when viewers saw Superman take a life, even the life of a really bad guy, people were shocked. People were stunned. No one had ever seen Superman act that way. That wasn't his brand. That wasn't his storyline. And when Snyder was asked why he made that decision, why he would portray Superman in that way, he said, I, I was trying to strike a note of realism 
I wanted to inject some realism in this new iteration of Superman films that would kind of influence where uh, all of the DC films would go for a stretch of time. You see, according to Snyder, realism, that is depicting life in the real world, it's just too complicated for a hero's hands to remain unclean. Snyder has a worldview that we would agree with, that no one skirts through this life. No one makes it through life in the world that is with their hands clean. Everyone gets dirty in some way, shape, or form. You see, life in the real world is not black and white. Everything outside of Eden is colored with shades of gray. And so one of my favorite features of the Bible is that God's word doesn't shrink back from depicting the complications and the complexities of life in a fallen world. It doesn't shrink back from showcasing what people are actually like, even the people that we may admire, those we might consider to be heroes of the faith, people like David. You see, after a string of narratives that showcased David's faithfulness, that demonstrated his righteousness in some very admirable ways, today's text kind of presents David in a different light. In today's passage, it shows that not even David can keep his hands clean in the real world as he navigates life like you and I do. See, David is like us in that he is a sinner, he is a struggler, he is a sojourner moving through a world that isn't right, and as he does, he gets his hands dirty, and I'm sure you can relate. You see, all of us make decisions. We have moments where we make decisions that are, that are poor. We make decisions that might be described as sinful, and sometimes those decisions flow out of our ignorance. Sometimes they flow out of our straight-up rebellion. We just don't want to follow God's will, God's way. We do want to do our own thing. But the good news of the gospel and, and the God that we're worshiping today is that God is more committed to our redemption than we are. He's more committed to you and I making it through this life than you and I are. And you see this in David's story. You see this in the story of Israel as a whole in the Old Testament. And you will certainly see this in the story of the church. The church as it is presented flaws and all in the New Testament. And the church that is existing right now flaws and all. God is more committed to our redemption and to the restoration of all things than even we are. Now, one of the things about this passage that makes it interesting is that God doesn't show up at all. He's not present and active in this passage in a direct, explicit way. He isn't prayed to. He isn't listened to. We just find this narrative showing David in action. He's making decisions. He's doing things. He's fighting battles. He's telling lies. And the narrator kind of presents this passage to us in a way that doesn't glamorize or glorify David in any way. In fact, he kind of puts David's decisions and he puts David's behavior before us without providing any moral assessment, without identifying any, taking any spiritual cue or spiritual assessment or evaluation of what David is doing here. There was one Old Testament scholar that raised the question, is there anything to learn from such a godless text? Now, I believe there is. I believe there is something to learn from a passage like this because as we know, all scripture is breathed out by God. All scripture is profitable to our souls 
And every passage bears a discernible witness to the person and work of Christ. And if we look closely enough, we will even see that testimony here in a text that might be considered godless. You see, chapter 26 ended with David writing a spiritual high. He glorified God by sparing Saul's life once again, showing his enemy mercy. And his enemy at the end of that chapter even called him blessed. But like most experiences in the life of faith, that extreme highs tend to be followed by extreme lows. They tend to be short-lived. There's a guy by the name of Elijah who illustrates this whiplash of faith really well. Elijah was a prophet of God who was used by God to showcase the Lord's power. There was a moment where he's literally on top of a mountain and he calls down fire from heaven. And the Lord pours fire down on this sacrifice, showing his power before all these people who are worshiping a false god known as Baal. It was a high moment in Elijah's life in more ways than one. It was an extreme high, one that should have built his faith and secured his faith. But in the very next chapter, in the very next scene, we find Elijah no longer living by faith but fleeing for his life. He's hiding in caves and he is struggling with suicidal thoughts. He moves from an extreme high to an extreme low like that. It's baffling how someone can go from, being, from doing so well in one, one moment to doing so poorly in the next. But that's kind of how life works in the real world. That's kind of how the life of faith is. The life of faith is not a steady high. And with a little patience and a little perspective, we can discover that, that the life of faith isn't an extreme low either. This is why contentment is one of the most important virtues that needs to be cultivated in our hearts as we live by faith in the world that is. Contentment is what can provide composure to our souls. Contentment is what can keep us from getting whiplash when we move from one situation to the next, when we're feeling one way one day and the polar opposite way the next. Well, David here reaches a low spot in his life of faith. When you step into chapter 27, this is what's happening. happening. Although he is Israel's future king, he, he chooses to leave the land God promised that he would rule, and he enters exile. He moves for a second time into Philistine territory to be surrounded by those who hate him, those who have been his enemies for a really long time. And his faith in this moment is faltering for no clear reason. It's hard to tell why David's faith is faltering in this moment. I mean, the Lord's promises to him haven't changed. The Lord's promises are still the same. He's going to be Israel's king. The only thing that seems to change or to have changed was David's inner inner dialogue. Because rather than speaking the Lord's promises to his heart and reminding him of what the Lord had said, he begins to entertain thoughts and words of unbelief. He begins to consider something that isn't true. Notice what he says in verse 1. He said to himself, one of these days I'll be swept away by Saul. And what's curious about that is that word, swept away, is the same word used to describe what the Lord would do to Saul one day in the previous chapter. There, David would say of his enemy, as the Lord lives, 
The Lord will certainly strike him down. Either his day will come and he will die or he will go into battle and perish. And the word perish there literally means be swept away. It's the same word. So you have a polar opposite perspective in David right now. A night and day difference between the David of chapter 26 and the David of chapter 27. What changed? And it may be frustrating to you that we don't really know what changed. We don't know what happened to change David's perspective in this shift from chapter 26 to chapter 27. But before you and I bash him for being a spiritual schizophrenic, we must keep in mind we got to keep in mind that we are to see ourselves in this contrast of David that is presented to us. Because like David, we oscillate between the poles of faith and unbelief. We may showcase the type of faith in one moment that can move a mountain, only to follow that up with the type of faith that can't even pop a balloon. This is who we are. This is life in the real world. This is what we are like as we journey through the world that is. And this, my friends, is why you and I must never put our faith in faith. This is why we must only put our faith in the grace of God. We don't put our faith in our faith, and we certainly don't put our faith in the faith of another, even those we may admire. And so we want to consider that when we look at David's example in this moment. We want to think about those that we have admired as we've walked with Jesus through this world, our moms, our dads, our grandparents, our siblings, our missionaries, our pastors, our leaders, our peers. If we put our faith in their faith, then when their faith falters, chances are are ours will too. And if I'm honest with you this morning, I believe this is happening a lot in American evangelical Christianity right now. Right now, we are living in a day where our terrible tendency to put our faith in the faith of our leaders, our terrible tendency to idolize and to put leaders who are charismatic, who are gifted, who are talented, to put them on pedestals, our terrible tendency to do that is coming back to bite us. We have moments where we put our faith in the faith of others, and then when their faith falters, ours do too. When leaders start acting out their unbelief, it rocks us too hard. And it reveals that our faith might not have been placed in the right place. And if you're in that moment, perhaps you're kind of recovering or you're struggling through being let down by leaders or let down by someone you admire, a mom or dad or something like that, let me warn you, no one is justified. No one is justified in walking away from Jesus or walking away from Jesus' people because a leader lets them down. If your faith is dependent and contingent upon the faith of those you admire. Your faith is subject to faltering. Your faith is being placed on shifting sands, and when your leader lets you down, you're not going to know what to do. And so what we want to consider today is whether or not our faith is is placed in faith 
or if our faith is placed in the grace of God. Because here we have a passage where not even the future king of Israel, this future king David, this man after God's own heart, even his faith is faltering. And his unbelief carries him into exile. He says, there is nothing better for me to escape immediately into the land then there is nothing better for me than to escape immediately to the land of the Philistines. Surely there was something better than that. It seems that David has, has a foggy brain. So either he's marked by unbelief in this moment or he's just had a baby, right? And I'm told by my wife that you give birth, you get foggy-headed. And I think David here is either given birth or he's not believing what he's supposed to believe about the Lord. But I use that term unbelief carefully because in actuality I don't believe in unbelief I think unbelief is always just another form of alternative faith it's an alternative belief meaning David's unbelief in this verse is simply misplaced faith he's no longer trusting God to take care of him by the promises of God's grace instead he's now believing that he must take care of himself. He's now believing and acting as though he is in control of how his life should unfold and how his life should go. And so he kind of takes the reins and he, he starts taking care of himself. He's living by unbelief or alternative faith that he has placed in himself. And so he takes his family and he moves to Philistine territory. He grabs his soldiers and all of their families. They pack up and they move into enemy territory. They go into exile, so to speak. And there they stay for a year and four months. Now, a life of self-sufficiency, a life in which you and I live by faith in ourselves, that is a viable way to live, at least for a little while. You can take care of yourself without having a discernible relationship with God in the world that is. Many people do. They do it every day. I know a man who describes himself as self-made. He worked hard to put himself through school. He networked to find a good job. He met and married a beautiful wife, has three wonderful kids. He spends his winters snowboarding, his summers fly fishing. He has, by many metrics, what all would consider to be a good life. And he has no felt need for God in his life. Everything seems to be okay. So when conversations kind of move in that direction, he's quick to shut it down because he's self-sufficient. He's making a life for himself. And from our perspective, he's doing a good job. He's living, he's approaching life in a viable way, at least for a, while, a little while. But what he doesn't understand and what burdens my heart when I consider who he is and what he is about is that a good life in this world, a good life in this world spurred on by self-sufficiency still falls short for the glory of which you were created. It still falls short of what God intends for you. When God, what God promises to give his people is always better than what we can achieve or attain for ourselves. What God promises to give those who are trusting in his grace is all that in the end is going to last. It's all that ultimately is going to, going to matter. You see, the grass is never greener on the other side of God's promises, on the other side of his grace. 
And although trusting that is challenging, the alternative, the alternative is to slowly wilt and to wither in a perpetual state of exile. This is what the prophet Isaiah, this is the nail that he would hammer in more ways than one in his book. He would say this, all humanity is grass and all its goodness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fade when the breath of the Lord blows on them. Indeed, the people are grass. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God, the promises of his grace, that's what's going to last. That's what will remain forever. And so Israel's future king enters exile where he lives and he acts out of unbelief, which is actually an alternative belief. He's living by faith in himself. And he succeeds for a season. His thought process works. He leaves Israel and Saul stops chasing him. He goes to foreign territory and he finds favor there. He finds favor with Achish, the, the king of Gath. And the narrator isn't clear on how he found favor with this rival king. It could be that Achish viewed David as, as breaking from his people. The fact that he showed up in his territory again meant he was turning his back on Israel, no longer identifying with Yahweh and the Lord. And so maybe Achish thinks, well, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. There might have been something to that. But, but then David makes a request. He asks Achish for one of the outlying towns. And much to our surprise, Achish actually gives him this town. He grants him a place called Ziklag. So after entering exile, David finds a sense of security. He finds a sense of freedom all there, all kind of flowing out of his unbelief at the beginning of the chapter. And so in Ziklag, he's able to live. He's able to operate with, without threat from Achish and without threat from the Philistine forces. And I want you to think about this. Because there's a subtle reminder here that that you and I never wander beyond the purposes of providence. We never wander beyond the purposes of providence. Ziklag, it turns out, was part of the territory that God sought to give Israel. It was supposed to belong to the two tribes of Simeon and Judah. It was supposed to be part of the territory that the people of Israel claimed and seized when they entered the promised land, but they failed to do so. And so here you have David, who's in a place because he's not trusting in the promises of God. He's not relying upon the Lord to take over him. He's, he's taking matters into his own hands. He goes into this place, and now he's actually being given a place that should have been given to Israel a long time ago. And what you and I think about then is that unbelief can't ultimately stop God from fulfilling his promises. Unbelief can't stop God from fulfilling his promises. There's a moment like this in the New Testament when Jesus makes a promise to a guy named Peter. Peter makes a profession of faith. He acknowledges that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and Jesus promises to build the church upon his confession that the kingdom of God was gonna flow out of what Peter professed, and he promises this to Peter, leading Peter to believe he's going to be a leader in that story. He's going to have a role to play. And he also assured Peter that he that his faith would not fail him even though he would very quickly act in unbelief. He tells Peter, look, there's coming a moment where you're going to deny knowing me three times and you're gonna deny me before the rooster even crows in the morning. 
But then Jesus says this to Peter. He says, but I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when you have turned back, you'll strengthen your brothers. And so think about it. Jesus promised that Peter would come back. He knew he was going to falter. He knew he was going to fail. But he promised Peter was going to return. And he assured Peter that when he did, he would be uniquely equipped to testify to his grace once again that he would be able to strengthen others in a more effective way had he never faltered, had he never denied Jesus. You see, Peter's unbelief didn't stop Jesus from fulfilling that promise. In a mysterious stroke of sovereign grace, Jesus worked through Peter's unbelief to later teach people not to put their faith in faith or to put their leaders on a pedestal but to put their faith only and always in the grace of God, in God's free and unmerited favor. And so what happens is he says, I've prayed for you that your faith doesn't fail. Yeah, your faith is important, but my prayer is what's ultimate. Your faith is dependent upon my prayer. My grace is underscoring your faith. That's where we live. The grace of Jesus, the grace of God. Now, one of the sure indicators that a person's faith may be resting in faith is when they talk about their relationship with Jesus and they use first-person singular pronouns way too much. This was Peter's approach to Jesus when Jesus told him, look, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. Listen to how Peter responds. He did not believe Jesus in that moment. Instead, he responds with self-sufficiency. Listen to what he says. Even if everyone falls away, referring to the other disciples, even if everyone falls away because of you, I will never fall away. Even if I have to die with you, Peter told him, I will never deny you. And so there, Peter's revealing that he doesn't understand the relationship between his faith and God's grace, between his faith and what Jesus must be for him if he's going to be the leader God intends for him to be. You see, at this time in his life, his Spotify playlist would have featured songs more like, I have decided to follow Jesus, and less amazing grace. And I'm curious, when you think about your relationship with Christ right now, what's featured on your playlist? Where does the accent fall in your relationship with God? Are you more focused on your faith and the caliber of it, or are you more focused on the grace of God and its sufficiency for sinners and sufferers like you and me. Well, the seeds of that lesson, I believe, are being planted in David's soul in 1 Samuel chapter 27. And I believe these seeds are gonna bear much fruit later in his life when he experiences the grace of God and his experience of God's grace would lead him to write Psalm 51. And he would open Psalm 51 with these words, be gracious to me, be gracious to me, not Not because of my faith, not because of my obedience, not because of my commitment, not because of my decision. Be gracious to me because of your faithful love. The accent is shifting in David's life. It's moving from his faith, which is important, to God's grace, which is ultimate. And so the future king's hands get real dirty in our passage today when when he starts to conduct raids. And this is where the story gets real messy. 
This is where the story might anger some of our contemporary readers. We read a portion in a passage like this. We read of David's acts in this moment, and we want to cancel him. We want to get rid of him. We want to provide no way for redemption and reconciliation. We'll just cancel him because of what he did in his past. And so the narrators reporting these events, they're saying that David started raiding a few people groups whose names are hard to pronounce. He starts to raid the Geshurites and the Girazites and the Amalekites. But he's not just raiding them. We're told that David butchered them. David doesn't leave a single person alive. And then he goes to Achish and he lies to this king who has shown him favor. He lies about where he's been conducting raids and what types of things he's been doing. Now, part of why he takes everyone out is because he doesn't want to be found out. He, he doesn't want word of his military endeavors to reach the Philistine king because that might unsettle them and they might want to put a stop to him and, and push him out of their land once again. But still, David's raiding, David's butchering, David's lying to cover his, his tracks. And once again, we see that passages like this warn us not to place our faith in any leader or person of influence, not to place any leader or person of influence on a pedestal because every hero gets their hands dirty. Every hero gets their hands dirty in the real world. What makes a person of faith admirable isn't their sanitation. What makes a person of faith admirable isn't their sanitation, it's their supplication. What makes the men and women that we should admire, those that we look to and learn from, and are those that, that come to the realization that the grace of God is far more important to them than the cleanliness or the strength of their faith. People whose supplication matters more than their sanitation, and what that means is these are the types of people who appeal more to the grace of God as time goes by because they are learning just how much dirt has accumulated under their nails. They're not presenting, they're not posing, they're not pretending to be anything else. Just sinners and sufferers who are desperate for the grace of God. This is where David goes. Perhaps David's experience is here in chapter 27, coupled with the fact that later in life he would conspire to kill another guy named Uriah. Maybe the combination of these experiences led to his passionate supplication in Psalm 51 where he appeals to grace. He appeals for mercy. Listen to what he says. Psalm 51, verse 14. Save me from the guilt of bloodshed. Save me from the guilt of bloodshed, God. God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not want a sacrifice or I would give it. You are not pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. You will not despise a broken and humble heart, O God. That's supplication. That's someone we should look to. That's an example we should follow. So it's not David's sanitation. It's not his perfection that we admire. It's his supplication as he grows in light of the grace of God. Now there are some scholars who suggest that David's brutal raids were actually justified. They make cases that his brutal raids were justified because he's conquering people in places that Saul failed to conquer. And so David's just following through with an ancient agenda. He's doing what the Lord told Saul to do but failed 
to do. Now the text does hint in that direction when we're told that these people and these places had been there from ancient times. And then you may remember the Amalekites. The Amalekites gave Moses fits as Israel was trying to journey through the wilderness to get to the promised land. But yet Moses didn't take them out. Saul failed to take them out. And some suggest that David is just finishing that purpose, that plan. But the narrator doesn't draw that connection clearly. He doesn't draw that connection explicitly. And when David takes away the livestock, he's He's doing the very thing God told Saul not to do. So even if David is doing what he thinks God wants him to do, he's not doing God's will God's way. Even if he's doing what the Lord intended for him to do, he's not doing it correctly. He's not doing it purely. He's not doing it righteously. Even his efforts to be faithful are sullied in this text. And it kind of reminds me again of the prophet Isaiah's words when he says all of us has become like something unclean and all our righteousness, all our righteous acts are like a polluted garment. All of us wither like a leaf and our iniquities carry us away like the wind. He's saying even our best attempts to obey God and to exercise faith, even our best efforts are sullied. Our best efforts are polluted. Our best efforts efforts aren't pure. They're not crystal. They're not clean. The life of faith is an Instagram that you can just filter all that you do before God and all that you do for God. Everything we do is tainted to some degree because we are living on this side of glory. We have not arrived yet. And so we think about that. Sometimes when I'm counseling Christians about making decisions and doing things for the glory of God, they'll sometimes say to me, well, I would like to serve the Lord. I would like to do this, but I just want to make sure my motives are right. I want to make sure my heart is pure. Until I'm convinced that my motives are right and my heart is pure, only then will I act. Only then will I do something for God's glory. And in every one of those moments, I tell them, if you're relying upon your motives Being crystal and clean, you are never going to be qualified to act for the glory of God. Your motives will never be practically and purely sanitized this side of glory. So instead of looking for your motives to be pure, why don't you lean on the grace of God and trust that his grace is sufficient for you and that his power is perfected in your weaknesses. Trust that you don't have to live your life in a filtered capacity. You can live your life in a raw, real way, trusting in and relying upon the grace of your God. So David, in this passage, he's acting in unbelief the whole time. Even when he tries to do something that some might say is right, he's still not doing it well. And so unbelief, self-sufficiency, is tainting everything that he's doing in this text. And over time, his reputation, we're told, grew. It grew positive in Achish's eyes. We're we're told that even Achish would come to trust David. And because of that, Achish thought David was repulsive to the people of Israel. So Achish, I like you, they must hate you. That was David's reputation as it grew in the land of the Philistines. Now earlier... Saul affirmed David as a very cunning man. And his cunning strategic thinking is clearly displayed in this passage. He's managed to escape uh, Saul. 
He's established a home in Ziklag. He's conquering people groups and claiming resources without stirring up the Philistines against him. He's deceiving his way into being trusted by the king. He's accomplished a lot. From an earthly perspective, he's done some remarkable and impressive things to survive in this story. In all of this, it seems, he was able to do on his own because none of it was done as a result of explicit or loud faith in the Lord. He's just doing things in a self-sufficient capacity. Now, the way the narrator reports on these 16 months, I think the way the narrator reports on these 16 months suggests that Achish's assessment that David had become repulsive to Israel, I think his assessment was accurate. The narrator doesn't glamorize or glorify David's accomplishments. He just reports them in a matter-of-fact way. And by reporting them in a matter-of-fact way, I think he's not glamorizing and glorifying David. I think he's restraining himself because he knows that in this moment, Achish's assessment of what the people of Israel thought of their future king is probably accurate. He doesn't seem proud of David. Now, David was a hero to many then, and he is a hero to many today, but this hero's hands were dirty because everyone who navigates life in a fallen world will get their hands dirty, even Jesus. When Jesus stepped out of glory and he entered into our exile, he came into the world that is. Even Jesus got his hands dirty. Now, to be clear, Jesus did not get his hands dirty because of any sin that came out of him or any unbelief that was practiced by him. Jesus got himself dirty because he came to our rescue. He came to do things for us that you and I could not do for ourselves. And in the process of saving us, The dirt of our sin, the dirt of our unbelief was flung upon him so that even Jesus didn't get through this life without getting dirty, but the dirt that fell upon him wasn't dirt from him. It was dirt that came from us. So you think about Jesus entering the exile of this world, not out of unbelief like David, but out of a compassionate concern for sinners and sufferers like you and me, out of a compassionate concern for people who are living life in exile in a world that isn't right, and yet his faith never faltered. Jesus remained obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And Jesus would take no one's life. He would only give up his life. And his death on the cross did make him repulsive in the eyes of Israel. Because only dirty people died on crosses. Only defiled people suffered that fate. And yet Jesus went there willingly. And he shed his blood so that our lives, so that our hearts, so that our sin may be made clean. You see, the cross of Christ is what requires you and I to never put our faith in faith, but to only put it in the grace of God. So that when Jesus came into the world, he's described as being the fullness of grace and truth. And when his body was cut open and blood began to flow from his veins, what happened in that moment was grace moving in our direction. 
This is why John would say that we have all received grace upon grace from his fullness, his righteousness, his faithfulness, his rightness. From his fullness, we receive grace upon grace upon grace. So we put our faith in no other place. We don't put our faith in our faith or the, our faith in the faith of any person in this room or any person in this world. We only and always put our faith in the grace of God. You see, a faith reliant upon the grace of God doesn't belong to someone who sits on a pedestal. It only belongs to the person who sits at the foot of the cross of Christ. The types of sinners and sufferers who live there, who have a broken spirit, a contrite heart, who are aware of how much dirt has accumulated under their nails so that they're looking to Christ constantly for cleansing. They're looking to Christ constantly for restoration. They're looking to Christ constantly for relief and redemption because our faith is never put in faith. Our faith is only and always put in the grace of God that flows to us through the cross of Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, would you give us grace even now to put our faith in Christ crucified and risen? Father, if our faith is faltering in this moment, I pray that you would shore it up. I pray that what you prayed, what Jesus prayed for Peter, I pray, Jesus, that you would pray for us even now, that our faith won't fail because it's underscored and it's supported and it's held together by your grace, your free and unmerited favor. And I pray that your grace would characterize our lives all the days that we spend in this world. God, we do look forward to the moment when you make all things right, when your kingdom is fully consummated and everything is made pure, everything is crystallized, everything is sanitized, everything is clean. We look forward to that day and I pray that you would give us glimpses of that day in this day. But Lord, I pray that you would usher that day in quickly. Father, we love you and we thank you for sending your son Jesus to live for us, to die for us, to rise for us. And I pray that you would help us to trust him all the days of our lives. For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.